Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. Blockchain is transforming finance. While blockchain has its critics, today's guest will demonstrate why this emerging technology promises to improve the finance industry by unlocking efficiencies with the adoption of blockchain technologies that will enable more transparent and more secure automated transaction records while reducing cost to compliance. Yuval Ruse is the CEO of Digital Assets, who is leading the charge around leveraging blockchain smart contracts that allow financial firms to collaborate with regulators while preserving privacy. Not a trivial challenge. Digital Assets ran a pilot project with the New York Federal Reserve demonstrating that blockchain treasury settlements can provide a granular control and permissions mandated by financial regulators while improving transparency around transactions. Prior to founding Digital Assets, Yuval managed an algorithmic trading desk at the DRW Investment Group. Join us as we explore how blockchain technologies coupled with artificial intelligence is changing today's financial industry. Yuval, thank you for joining us today on Explain to Shane. You have been spending some time in Washington recently, actually before Congress, which I know is always fun. People love coming here and getting to talk to our our representatives and our senators. But tell us, just kind of start us off with some real basics about your your company, Digital Assets Holding, and you are doing a lot to explain to people, as well as the fact that you're doing a lot in the market on modernizing the financial infrastructure around blockchain. So let's start with some basics. Yeah. So uh, first of all, uh, nice, nice to be here, and and yeah, being being in D.C. and and trying to explain the the positives and negatives of, of a new a new technology is uh, definitely an interesting experience. So so um, at at digital asset, um, really we're we're using blockchain technology and smart contract uh, contracts to um, really. Um, bring the financial uh, infrastructure to the 21st century. And we can talk in more detail what, what that means, but, but really there's, there's quite a lot of inefficiency that exists in today's infrastructure due to a lot of reconciliation and, and really this hub-and-spoke model that traditionally is how enterprise software was built. And what we're trying to do is bring a lot of standardization, which is really where you use smart contracts, and then really a, a one source of truth, which is where blockchain comes in, to to remove a lot of these inefficiencies. So we've been we've been at it for now nine years. Um, we've been working pretty much in every major uh, economy uh, in the world, uh, and very soon we'll hopefully la- launch. Um, later this year, um, a new network uh, on which a lot of these financial institutions will transact uh, some of their financial transactions on. So that's that's really high level uh, what we do at Digital Asset. So um, I read your. T- I recommend everybody who listens to this actually take the time to read your um, testimony and the the documents actually that you refer to in your testimony that are online um, in the Senate uh, hearings. Also talk about, so in the smart contract language, I think one of the things that people don't always understand is the ability to utilize that for both privacy as well as, you mentioned, efficiency. And that's sometimes a misnomer. I think with people think everything on blockchain is just wide open and so you know everything, I mean, you can be built that way. But I think it's, in, you have done a, a 
good job of saying that you can delineate these down and only share the information that is needed for like a transaction. Am I understanding that right? Yeah, um, spot on. And 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 I think and I think that this is one of the things that um, is really challenging when you uh, go and, and give this kind of a testimony, especially because you don't have that much time. And you come in where a lot of the people that are asking you the questions have these preconceived notions on what is the technology all about, and they kind of pull everything into one bucket. So I think that when you think about public chains today, like if you think about Bitcoin or Ethereum, their architecture, and we can explain why, um, was created in a way that everybody gets to see every transaction and there is no privacy. When we started Digital Asset, we, we were not trying to recreate Bitcoin or Ethereum, but use some of the ideas behind blockchain to build financial regulated, if I may say, regulated financial infrastructure. And therefore, that one element that I just said about everybody can see every transaction um, uh, and no privacy was to us uh, something that was not not possible to have if you wanted to work with you know regulated financial institutions so when we build our infrastructure um, to us um, it was key that when you are designing these smart contracts you're not just saying what is the transaction but you actually can explicitly define who are the parties that are part of that transaction meaning who are the eligible parties that can see this transaction and who are the parties that are eligible to interact with this transaction. So I'll, I'll give a very simple example. Imagine, Shane, you, you and me are moving money from one to another. Uh, so both you and I have the ability to decide how much money we want to move. But we also know that there is KYC and AML requirements that if a transaction... Know, know your customer... People know that yeah. one. What's, sorry, what's oh, AML? Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Know your customer or anti-money laundering okay. rules that say that if you are above, if, if a money transfer happens over $10,000, well, that needs to be reported to the authorities. So, for example, in a smart contract, we can define that Shane and Yuval are parties to a transaction where they can define how much money will move. But there is another party, imagine a regulator, that if the transaction is above a $10,000, that regulator gets to see the transaction. They have visibility suddenly into the transaction because it triggered an anti-money laundering rule. They cannot define how much money gets moved. They can't touch the money, but they have visibility. So when we build the technology, we really want to have this fine-grained control over privacy of a transaction, who gets to interact with it, but also who gets to see it. Where in Bitcoin and Ethereum, by definition, all parties on the network gets to see everything, which to us was just uh, 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 not a possibility when it came to, to regulated infrastructure. That seems like a huge differentiator. I, mean, I would imagine that it, as you explain that to uh, anyone, but especially uh, the people that are looking to define things for our regulators, that is a big benefit. Yeah, and, 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 I think, and I think that in the early days of Ethereum and Bitcoin, uh, you know, you would have a lot of libertarians and anarchists that would say, no, this is great. Everybody gets to see everything. 
no more uh, Uncle Sam or, or Big Brother can hide things away from people. And, and by the way, that lack of privacy was a core part of how to solve some of the consensus mechanisms and, and, and trust mechanisms in those chains. And again, like I said, the, the, it was a novelty on, on solving those, those uh, what you call cryptography problems using that lack of privacy. But we said, again, from very early on, if you want to work with regulated institutions, you will never be able to, to pass uh, by not having privacy. And, and therefore, we, we've been pretty much from day one, uh, our differentiator was, was privacy. The interesting thing is that two to three years ago, a lot of these public chains or people that are participating in crypto wanted those institutions to adopt it, wanted them to build financial infrastructure. And suddenly you've seen in the last three years a lot of a lot of the newcomers or even the old ones are trying to figure out solutions of how to now incorporate it privacy after the fact. We personally think that it's a challenge once you have kind of established your core architecture not to have privacy, to, to bolt on privacy as an afterthought. Yeah. In our the opinion, Internet's a huge example of that, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. and, and security, right? <laughs> oh, we didn't exactly. think about it. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So I think, I think that that's much more of a challenge. For us, it was kind of like a prerequisite before we even got started. And, and yes, we, we a lot of times talk about privacy as our biggest differentiator. So um, give us a little landscape here. So I know Congress has been focused on – there's a lot of discussion about, like, stable coin. And, and I think sometimes it's just like they're trying to replicate the current environment but with a digital currency and not – you know, they, they're not willing to, like, kind of change the rules. You were talking about earlier, you know, the idea of all the friction points in the, in the space. So where are you seeing this have a quick uptake and adoption and people get the beauty of it and they're like, great, let's just, this will move things a lot faster. Um, we can get rid of some of those friction points. And then I imagine there are just places where regulators do what they do. Regulators like to regulate and they want to be in charge of things and they'll tell you when yeah. you get to do this kind of thing. I think, I think, I think the, the question is so important but, but also so complicated because it has so many different dimensions. So I'll try to I'll try to parcel it, hopefully, in, in, in something that is easy to digest. So I think that one thing is when you think about uh, cryptocurrencies, it's a new asset class, right? It's, it's suddenly an um, uh, 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 asset class that have effectively been given value out of nothing, right? I mean, if you think about it, gold is kind of similar, but gold has a historical moat, meaning the value of gold is disconnected from what you would call its utility intrinsic value, meaning you can use gold to sell jewelry, you could use it for semiconductors, you can use it for satellites. There's a lot of real-world utility usages of gold, but if you actually look at the value that gold trades, it gets used as kind of like an alternative to fiat money, right? And that's a made-up value, but it, it has a historical context because gold used to actually be a real you know, transfer of value from old, old times. So it has some kind of historical grounding. You can think about cryptocurrencies are trying to say it's the modern, modern age gold in the sense that it is a store of value, but there's real, not real utility to it. A lot of people will say that there is utility to it. 
cross-border payments and things like that, but it's not actually being used for that. It really is used as a speculative store of value. And one of the areas that a lot of people in Congress are talking about is that these people that have created these cryptocurrencies have effectively minted these assets out of thin air, have made all kinds of promises uh, to uh, these investors, but didn't go through your traditional process of you know, filing an S-1 like a public company or doing a Reg D issuance like a private placement, haven't gone through the, the traditional regulatory uh, processes of issuing an asset. And a lot of the challenge, a lot of what you're seeing with the SEC is the SEC saying you have effectively issued a security without going through the regulatory process of issuing a security. So that's one area of debate where a lot of people are saying to the SEC, you don't know what you're talking about. We didn't actually issue a security. And the SEC, for example, with the case against Ripple, is saying, no, you did issue a security, and you've done that without the appropriate disclosures, and therefore you have done an, an un, un, uh, you know, not a legal uh, securities offering. And we'll see how that plays out. So that's one element. I think the problem is, is that that first problem have pulled all aspects of the technology into look at all these bad actors that are deceiving investors, that are uh, creating these assets that terrorist organizations and criminals are using to move value. And they're bucketing everything. And actually, in the testimony, you saw a lot of that kind of pulling together um, kind of thought process where we at Digital Asset are just using the underlying technology to actually manage real-world assets in a much more efficient manner. And when you look at how financial regulations, uh, fi financial institutions are being regulated, actually their regulations have no context to technology in the rules that they have to follow, meaning a financial institution needs to satisfy all kinds of conditions independent of the technology that they are using. I'll give an example. If you are a bank, you need to make sure that your customer information is confidential, meaning that, you know, if Shane is using, just as an example, JP Morgan, JP Morgan needs to protect your information. It doesn't matter if they're using a MongoDB database, if they're using a SQL database, if it's on-prem, if it's on the internet, is it in the cloud? It doesn't really matter because the regulation would never be able to adopt as fast as technology gets created. So it just really is a high level. It says if you are a bank, you need to protect your customer's information confidential. And, and I think that that makes sense because you really want to disconnect yourself from technology innovation, but to keep some kind of like high-level principles under which you want your financial institutions to keep on um, uh, behaving. And I think that when we started developing our product, we were hoping that a lot of our clients would just be able to continue to innovate because now there's a new database technology that allows them to do things in a more sophisticated and advanced manner as long as they can maintain 
all of the principles under which they operate already today. And, and, and this is where the world starts to conflating is because a lot of the regulators, by definition, if, you, if we go back to the previous question, said, oh, you're using blockchain. Well, how can you protect Shane's information? Because everything is public. No privacy. So what, what happened is it started getting into this, this situation where if you're using blockchain in the description of your projects, you need to get an approval from a regulator. And that really stifled a lot of innovation that had nothing to do with cryptocurrencies. Uh, it really slowed down a lot of that innovation. But nevertheless, I think that what we are seeing is that there's actually quite a lot of um, uptick in terms of our clients. So I'll just give like rattle just real quick examples. Um, for example, with Broadridge, which is a financial institution publicly traded, we have created uh, a repo solution. Repo is repurchase agreements. It's how banks finance each other overnight. We're there processing, just to give you a sense, the, the world market for repurchase agreements is about $10 trillion volume a day. So it's a very big market. We're now, and the U.S. is about 4 to $5 trillion a day. So the U.S. is half of the world economy's uh, repurchase market. We're already, I think, close to over $100 billion a day in transactions that are happening using this technology. And just by using the technology, the customers that are using it are managing their assets much more efficiently. Um, the reconciliation is done. They're getting a return on their investment much better. So the technology is proving itself, and it is getting used. Or we have mortgages that are being issued on a blockchain and then get acquired uh, in a much more efficient ma manner. So historically, it would take about a month to settle a mortgage uh, purchase. Now it's being done in, in uh, hours. Um, and, and there's many other use cases that have nothing to do with cryptocurrencies that are using the technology. But the challenge is that when you go and you want to um, launch these applications, because our customers are heavily regulated, getting the approval process, because the word blockchain shows up, ends up being much longer than if they were to just use a traditional database in the cloud. And that's that's unfortunate part of this kind of connection to cryptocurrencies. If you'd called it distributed ledger, would you have slid right by them? Uh, <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's a very good point. Uh, you're onto something. Uh, Distributed ledger apparently is, is not apparently, um, factually, it is, everybody knows that that means blockchain. So <laughs> specifically that word, no. But I actually think that one of the recommendation a lot of times that I do talk to our clients about is you just need to make sure that when you go and talk to a regulator, what is a regulator worried about? They're worried about those principles. So it's so important that if you just start with, hey, we're using blockchain technology for this, everybody gets worried. Rather than doing that, you're saying you need to come forward and say, we understand that we need to satisfy settlement finality, confidentiality of transactions, confidentiality of customer information. And start by saying that you understand that and everything that you are responsible to fulfill is still going to be met. 
right? I, I think that leading by technology immediately makes it look like you are trying to use technology for the sake of using a technology rather than to try to solve a specific problem. Uh, and, and I think that that's the wrong order, right? And a lot of times people said about blockchain, it's a technology in search for a, for a problem. And I, I, I disagree with that, but there's definitely have been a lot of institutions that have been, hey, we want to be part of it. So, yeah, let's just kind of force to use the technology to, to, to solve a problem uh, rather than look for the real problems that they're having and see which one the technology is appropriate for. I think it was my second episode of this podcast. I had on a group from Ohio who were just obsessed with this, and it was because they he was a um, he owned a, a chain of uh, car dealerships, and he realized the amount of friction there was in the uh, chain of custody from the all the different parts of like selling a car, then owning a car, and then selling a car again, and the key thing they finally got to help the Secretary of State of Ohio to move to a blockchain-style program for doing the um, um, title of the car mm -hmm. was they went and talked to the banks and said, do you know how much real estate you're spending keeping paper on these car loans? And they finally got one of the CEOs of one of the Ohio banks to go down and talk to, like, go talk to the guy on the 12th floor. And he's like, yeah, sir, we have to keep warehouses of information to keep the state of Ohio appeased about this. And they slowly migrated their process and saved billions of dollars on – and those are like those knock-on effects people don't think about. It's like to make all the all the transactions – you know, I mean a lot of this stuff is now digital. But there are certain places in the states where they just still – you know, the, the and he's like, it's just we put it on blockchain. And, and one of the really interesting points was when a car is damaged and they decide to total it, it still has a value – of certain parts up to about 30 days but if they can't get the title moved from the insurance company and all that from the bank it, and the entire thing ends up just being you know although all our esg work you know it just ends up going to a junkyard and there's nothing you can do at that point this if we could salvage a car within the first 15 days we actually can get like a tenth of the percentage of the value plus we can save the parts on it so I just, you know, it's a different way than the way you're using it, but it's an interesting way to look at blockchain. No, but I think, I, I actually think that it's a good, it's a really good segue, this story into, into the point where I think this is where, and rightfully so, a lot of, a lot of the people are really starting now to hone on and, and the term that they get, they, that gets used, which I personally do not like the term, but, but the concept I'm, I'm, I'm a hundred percent behind, which is what a lot of people will talk today about tokenization of real-world assets. It's really like, let's not just create these made-up assets for store of value because, right, there's gold, there's silver, but silver is really not even close to gold, and that's it, right? Like, you don't have, like, gold one, gold two, gold three, gold 10,000, which in crypto you have, like, hundreds and thousands of them, right? Like, so this idea of tokenization of real-world assets is really where the, the value is, which is can we actually use this technology to streamline the processing and movement of value as close as possible to real time of real world assets? And, and your example is just one example, but I can, I can just rattle. We're working in physical US net gas. Uh, we talked about repurchase agreement, US mortgages, structure products in the U.S. and Europe, bond issuances, um, 
sports wagering, uh, life insurance contract, annuities. Um, you know, the title is a, is a great example. I want, my, I want my next year's fantasy sports to be rough a ball team to be on a blockchain. That would be awesome. Like, yeah. So, so I think, I think that <laughs> so this idea of, of real-world asset, and you actually used a word that I just think it is what it is. Really what tokenization, if done correctly, is really taking digitization to the, the next level. I think that people don't like digitization because digitization is a term that has been used for the last 15, 20 years. So people wanted like a cool new term, so they use tokenization. I think that the, the problem with that is that it kind of insinuated that, hey, if I just represented an asset as a token, I solved all the problems, and that's just not true. You really have to digitize the process, the issuance of the asset. You need to digitize all of the transfer rules and all of the all of the components of the life of an asset. You don't just represent it as a token, and that's it. So, it, it really, I think that that is the big potential around this technology, and I think you're going to see more and more of that happening. I think what you will see on the traditional, if I may say, public chains where you don't have privacy. You will see tokenization of real-world assets that don't have regulatory scrutiny behind them. One very easy example, concert tickets, football tickets. Right? Who cares if you see that tickets move from one hand to another and you can see who it is, who owns the tickets? Maybe some people would care, but generally speaking, there's not going to be that much sensitivity, Right? where I think that if you're talking about tokenization of real-world assets, of regulated assets, bonds, title, all of those things, privacy would have to be something that, that you solve for. I actually think the ticket example is one where you could capture people's imagination. Like there's, you know, there's just, for as many people as do have mortgages and have major assets, you know, I think about, um, I mean, recently we had a concert venue here that I ordered tickets. I thought I was getting tickets to something and they, they had to send out a note saying, we don't actually do business with this company that's been spoofing the name of our you know venue. And that's something that the general public might actually grab onto. They're like, oh, wait a minute, this, this number, you know, it, probably the serialization of what used to be on the bottom of a ticket, you know, for Ticketmaster might actually give them an, an, an understanding of the asset. So I'm not saying it's that important as a ticket, but it's just like a, trying to put this into people's minds as you're dealing with people. It's, it's interesting because it's something I know I do a lot. Um, and the other thing is that you get used to the idea that you never actually touch the asset, which is, depending on your age bracket, that might be really normal. And others, they're like, it just isn't real unless I have that, you know, hundred in my, my hand or my pocket. Um, yeah. You did a pilot project with the New York Fed. So tell us how that, that went, because that seems like that's some people that are looking to make this real. Yeah, listen, I think, I think uh, I'll make, first of all, one comment. Um, and I said that in the testimony, um, which I think is very important, because I think that when people hear, there, there's again, there's this, there's, there's this inherent concern when you start t touching this technology because of the lack of privacy in public chains. Oh, if the U.S. government is going to issue this, a lot of people are going to uh, get worried. And, and I understand it. I think money, money, and money issued by government is a very sensitive topic. Um, so it is important to, to emphasize that it was a pilot, and, and really the goal there was to learn what are the possibilities um, that are 
you know, what are the possibilities that are available if you use the technology properly from a privacy perspective, um, from an issuance perspective. So really what we were working with the, with the Fed is to show how you can use this technology to issue uh, uh, a digital money while preserving the two-tier solution. So maybe I'll, I'll just real quick explain. Um, most people, uh, unless you hold hard cash, uh, don't actually hold central bank money. You actually own commercial money. So when you go, let's imagine, with uh, cash into a bank and you open a bank account, so let's say you take $1,000, so that is uh, central bank money, and you give it to Citibank, Citibank will take your $1,000 um, cash, and then they will issue you $1,000 of Citibank money. So when you are actually in uh, looking in your online account, you don't actually see central bank money, you see commercial money. And that's the reason why FDIC exists, is because you have credit risk. You actually, Citibank could go under. It happened with Washington Mutual, for example, and, and, and if it goes under, the U.S. government effectively will insure you up to $250,000 against that was, you. That was a big uh, moment for uh, Silicon Valley Bank. What, two, now is it two years ago? <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, yeah, wait a minute. Exactly. All these people wanted to give you universal basic income at 10000 and they couldn't live on a quarter of a million when they found out that's all they were going to get back. But that's a side note. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, 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 so I, think, I think that just to explain, the two-tier solution says – the only people that can really draw money from the central bank uh, are commercial banks, so your, your usual suspects. And we as citizens are not allowed to uh, draw money directly from the central bank. So the central bank, the Federal uh, Reserve, uses these commercial banks to disperse money to uh, us common citizens. And there's all kinds of reasons why that is. Um, the central bank usually doesn't want to uh, act as, uh, as a consumer bank. They don't want to deal directly with the investors, so they use the commercial banks as conduits in order to uh, dispense uh, money to citizens. Um, and, and the other thing, uh, which is the advantage, I think, from a privacy perspective, the central bank doesn't get to see every transaction that we do on a day-to-day -day basis. There is, like we said in the beginning of this conversation, uh, anti-money laundering rules, and those, those, those rules are enforced by the banks, and that's why they have regulators that make sure that they enforce these rules. But from a privacy perspective, the, you know, Uncle Sam doesn't get to see every one of our transactions unless they exceed... $10,000. So really what we did in the pilot is really make sure that the regulators, and in this case the, the Federal Bank of New York, understand what are the possibilities with respect to the technology from a scale perspective, from a privacy perspective. Can you actually issue digital money that would still mimic the two-tier solution, meaning the central bank could issue the money, but then the money will be dispersed to the individual um, uh, clients using the commercial banks. So that's, that's really what we've done. It is a pilot. I, I would say the pilot was successful because I think we were able to show that you could do things in a private manner and in a scalable manner, uh, but it was just a pilot. I, I think that a lot of times 
There's a lot of criticism that the U.S. is not at the forefront. I also want to remind people the U.S. dollar is the reserve currency. There was inflation uh, in the last year. There's geopolitical tensions and things like that. And the U.S., generally speaking, has way more to lose if they get it wrong. So I think that it, it, is, it does make sense that the U.S. would be much more cautious around exploring the technology uh, and what does it mean. And also, you need to weigh what is the value of doing such a big migration. Moving your money system from one technology to another is not moving from, I don't know, Netflix to Amazon Prime as your main source of, 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 of entertainment, right? It's much more consequential uh, to the world economy, to the U.S. economy, uh, and therefore you really need to be very thoughtful uh, about, first of all, understanding is it possible, and then also thinking about, well, what is the value of it? Where am I going to get the return from doing that? Do you think the U.S. needs to lead? What if somebody else takes charge and they get ahead of us? Yeah, so, so I think... I think um, I think the U.S. needs to be involved in the conversation. I think I think that that's more important. I, I, I think that um, listen. I, I think a lot of times people will bring up the point of China. China, for example, have been very uh, um, uh, advanced with their experiments with the uh, EE one. And I think that although although um, it's it's important to keep track and understand, I think at the end of the day, the yuan is not going to become the reserve currency because it's on a blockchain. And I think that that's a lot of times, you know, you, you, you need to kind of like, and I'm not saying that it might not be a component why company countries will consider doing trade with China because maybe it's easier, it's more efficient. But in my opinion, it's not going to be the primary reason. I think the, the bigger problem, and I think that this is not just necessarily with respect to CBDC and, and currency, is the absence of the U.S. from at least the conversations around standards or what should happen, in my opinion, is much more damaging than the lack of actually implementing the technology. Because again, I, 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 think, I think right now, most developed countries are thinking about what does this technology mean? What is the value of it? And I think that the U.S. should be at the forefront of those conversations. I, I still think we're, we're many years away from developed countries moving all of their payment solutions to this technology. That, that's interesting because I, I, I'm fortunate I get to travel quite a bit. And one of the first questions I ask is, do I actually need to get – do I need to bring cash? Do I bring U.S. cash and change it or do, you know, some countries you go into, you never have to do anything but wave your phone at things and everything goes well, right? But they have that same issue of, you know, cost, uh, is it cost prohibitive to make the change? And then there's there's also, you know, there's a lot of things that go on in the in-between spaces. So, you know, sometimes you're getting the in. Yeah, but I think, I think maybe, maybe, and I, I don't know if that's what you meant, but with the in, in the in between, I, th I think that, for example, and this is sometimes where, where I, I draw analogies to universal health care. Do you really need to move into universal health care in order to solve some of the inefficiencies in the healthcare system? My opinion is no. You could find areas where you have a lot of friction, and no. just by doing that, right. make, make the world much better. So I'll give you an example. Most countries today, and including in the U.S., will have real-time payments. 
without blockchain technology. In Europe, in Asia, most countries have real-time payments, and the Fed moved to FedNow. There's, there's going to be, there's going to be. But there's still a lot of friction in um, international payments. So the question is, do you really need to move all of your payment system to a blockchain technology, or can you actually use this technology to find the areas of in-between where you have that friction point to make the experience that when I come with my U.S. credit card or with my phone to a foreign country, I can actually move, move money uh, in real time uh, and do it significantly more efficient, right? But, but to be honest, most of these problems are not something that the individual will experience on a day-to-day. Because the nice thing is really what ends up happening is when you use your credit card abroad, you could use it instantly. And really what happens is the, 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 the place where that is affecting you is in the overall price that you pay for the good because the system on the back end makes sure that your experience as a consumer is a great experience. All of the mess is happening behind the scene and that's why sometimes these transactions are just expensive. So you're not going to see as a consumer a change from a user experience perspective, but I think that if you solve some of these problems, very similar to, like I said, in healthcare, you could actually see the cost of these transactions go down significantly because the back end becomes much more efficient. Well, I know you're busy with the banking system, but if you want to tackle healthcare next, please be my guest. There would be a lot of interest in that. Uh, this has been fascinating. I look forward to following the work that you are doing, and I'm sure there'll be a lot more opportunities to, to, to watch what your, your team's up to. Thank you for being a guest today on Explain to Shane. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.